There she is. That's the most famous picture of her. It's in the National Portrait Gallery. It's a Frederick William Burton, 1865. And what I want to do is to start immediately with a quotation uh, because we're going to talk about relationships, her relationships and what she made of relationships in her novels and in her other writings. Family likeness has often a deep sadness in it. Nature, that great tragic dramatist, knits, knits us together by bone and muscle and divides us by the subtler web of our brains, blends yearning and repulsion and ties us by our heartstrings to the beings that jar us at every movement. From Adam Bede. Well, so writes the narrator of Adam Bede, a publishing sensation when it came out in February 1859 under the pseudonym George Eliot. Press and public asked eagerly who this new unknown novelist might be. Charles Dickens and Thomas Carlyle's clever wife, Jane Carlyle, were genuinely delighted to receive complimentary copies. Jane Carlyle wrote that reading the novel was as good as going to the country for one's health. Elizabeth Gaskell was flattered to be asked if she was the author because she was already the famous author of Mary Barton and other novels. Um, but she was still quite impressed by Adam Bede, so much so that she was uh, quite pleased to be asked if she was the author. She wasn't, of course. Queen Victoria noted in her journal the deep impression the book had made on her and Prince Albert, and she recommended it to her uncle, King Leopold of the Belgians, as the finest, one of the finest novels written for a long time. This is, this, she also wrote in her journal about it. And this, she also commissioned paintings from Edward Henry Corbould of two scenes from Adam Bede, which you might know that in the Royal Collection. Intelligent and probing as the narrator's remark about family likeness is, such generalized observations alone did not bring the novel its runaway success with readers and critics. Believable characterization, and in particular, believable and often sparkling dialogue, ranging from high seriousness to hilarity, played a considerable part. So too did the author's ability to embed her characters in their family and social context, and to observe the complexity of their emotions and, and their actions at moments of conflict and difficulty. George Eliot also achieved, with her first novel, what Dickens had managed 22 years earlier with his first piece of fiction, Pickwick Papers, in 1837. That is, um, they, had their, um, uh, they were quoted in Parliament. Mr Pickwick's idiosyncratic servant, Sam Weller, was quoted in Parliament. And now, George Eliot's sharp-brained and sharp-tongued farmer's wife, Mrs Poyser, was accorded the same privilege. A flavour of her conversation can be gleaned from her exchange late in the novel with the local bachelor schoolmaster and misogynist Bartle Massey. Here is her riposte to his denigration of womankind, which, according to him, thinks two and two will come to make five if she cries and bothers enough about it. Aye, aye, said Mrs Poyser. One would think and hear some folks talk as the men were cute enough to count the corns in a bag of wheat. They were only smelling at it. They can see through a barn door, they can. Perhaps that's the reason they can see so little on this side of it. <laughs> Bartle tries again with an attack on wives. If a man has a mind for hot meat, he says, his wife will match it with cold bacon. To which Mrs Poyser replies, yes, I know what the men like. A poor soft as a simper atom like the picture of the sun, whether they did right or wrong, and say thank you for a kick and pretend she didn't know which end she stood uppermost till her husband told her. 
That's what a man wants in a wife, mostly. He wants to make sure a one fool is will tell him he's wise. But there's some men could do without that. They think so much of themselves already, and that's how it is, there's old bachelors. <laughs> the answer to the question on everyone's lips was soon known. George Eliot was Marian Evans, a journalist and translator aged 39 who had both good reason to employ a pseudonym and personal experience to give the ring of truth to her presentation of the pleasures and pains of family and community life. A brief sketch of George Eliot's ordinary, extraordinary life would run as follows. On 22nd of November, 1819, George Eliot was born Mary Ann Evans at South Farm on the Arbury Estate in Warwickshire, just outside Nuneaton. She was the third child of the second marriage of Robert Evans, estate manager to the great Newdigate family. Being exceptionally clever and serious, she did well at English and French in her local school and was permitted to use the library of the great house of the Newdigates, Arbury Hall. Her father also allowed her to have lessons in German and Italian from a local tutor. That was pretty unusual for a sort of lower middle class or upper working class girl uh, in the 1820s uh, in the Midlands. After her mother died when Marianne was 16, she kept house for her father until his death in 1849 when she was 29. Having gone through a strongly evangelical phase in her teens, her reading of English and German books questioning the literal truth of the Bible led her to renounce her religion. Uh, in her early 20s. Her horrified father threatened to banish her from home. She contemplated with dread the life of a schoolteacher in Leamington Spa until her older brother Isaac intervened with their father and domestic peace was restored. She wrote to a friend uh, about being scared of having dodgy, lonely lodgings and scanty food and having to go around Leamington as if she had a great... Uh, sticker on her face saying rebel and infidel. So that was, that was uh, uh, spared her by Isaac, her brother Isaac. Marianne developed friendships with progressive thinkers in nearby Coventry, through whom she was introduced to the radical London publisher John Chapman and some of his authors. Chapman commissioned her to complete a three-volume translation of the German work of biblical criticism, David Friedrich Strauss's Das Leben Jesu, The Life of Jesus. The translation came out anonymously in 1846. After her father's death, she rejected the idea of remaining in the Midlands to be a useful aunt to the children of either Isaac uh, or their older sister Chrissy, both of whom were married with families in the location. And instead, she set out for London. She'd been left 90 pounds a year by her father, not enough to live on, but enough to encourage her to try an independent life in London as a journalist and translator. Early in 1851, she moved into Chapman's interesting home at 142 Strand to work as the unacknowledged editor of the radical quarterly journal he had just bought, the Westminster Review. And this is, this is another of my books which has quite a lot about George Eliot in it. It's a, it's a story of 142 Strand and radicalism in London at the period. And the picture there on the bottom is from John Tallis's London Street Views, published in 1847, which is kind of early A to Z. You could buy a little booklet of just some of the streets in London. 
the strand being so long had about three different booklets um, dedicated to it. But you can see the tallest of the buildings there uh, it has at the top John Chapman, bookseller and publisher. And that was 142 Strand. Unfortunately, the building is not there anymore. It's between King's College and Waterloo Bridge, if you want to go and have a look at number 142. It's a boring building now. Anyway, he had just bought the Westminster Review, and here, Marianne, calling herself, now calling herself Marion rather than Mary Ann Evans, she met all the young progressive authors of the day and became used to attending soirees and meetings held by Chapman, where she was the only woman. And this is Chapman. Um, he's got the, we don't know the, 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 there are not very many pictures of him. We don't know um, who, who did this. It's a photograph. And we don't know why he's got a white beard and, a, and an, a, a great black head of hair. But the main thing about it is you have to notice that he is very, very handsome. For Chapman's household consisted of himself, his wife Susanna, 14 years his senior, two children, and the family's live-in governess, who was also Chapman's lover. In 1851, a comic drama, though not funny for Marion at the time, was played out at 142 Strand, as Chapman made frequent visits to Miss Evans's room to learn German from her and hear her play the piano and more. Soon, the, the other two women in the household, wife and mistress, joined forces to insist on her removal. After a tactful retreat to stay with her Coventry friends, one might say it's a cliche, she was sent to Coventry, uh, a return was negotiated on the understanding that Marion would restrict her relationship with Chapman to that of invaluable assistant on the Westminster Review. And so it came about. And there followed an extremely fruitful period, fruitful for her and for us, of writing long, informed and often witty articles on English, French and German literature, philosophy, history and social science, as well as keeping touchy contributors happy with her firm but tactful comments on their contributions to the Westminster Review. Through Chapman, she met Dickens, Thomas Henry Huxley and the American Ralph Waldo Emerson, who lodged with Chapman on his visits to London. Chapman also introduced her to George Henry Lewis, a brilliant journalist, translator, and miscellaneous writer on philosophy, science, and many European literatures. And this is a photograph of Lewis taken in 1865, I think. Unfortunately, Lewis had a wife, Agnes, from whom he was separated, but whom he, he could not divorce since they had enjoyed an open marriage, a bohemian open marriage, and he had accepted two children born to Agnes, whose father was not Lewis, but his friend and journalist, Thornton Hunt. And here is a very striking drawing from the National Portrait Gallery um, of Agnes Lewis at the piano, G.H. Lewis at her elbow and Thornton Hunt at a little distance um, and it's Thackeray, a pencil drawing by Thackeray, uh, done in about 1848, so before the threesome uh, fell out or came into any kind of uh, disarray. And some of you will recognise Thackeray's signature, do you? Can you see where it is? It's a top right, it's his head, it's his hair and his glasses. That's how he um, signed his uh, little drawings on his letters and everywhere. He did lots of these pencil dress drawings, and that's Thackeray. Well, Marion and Lewis began their relationship in London in 1853, but they found it expedient to travel together to Germany in the summer of 1854. 
Lewis wanted to, to do research in Weimar and Berlin for the biography of Goethe he was writing. And Marianne could continue sending her articles to Chapman for the Westminster Review while helping Lewis by translating extracts from German for his book. Living in Weimar and consorting with the composer Franz Liszt and his married lover, the Princess von Sein Wittgenstein, they escaped for a while the inevitable scandal and disapproval back home in England, where, it must be said, Chapman, Dickens, Wilkie Collins, and many other respectable men shared their lives, usually in secret, with a wife and a mistress. Marion did lose friends. Lewis was invited to dinner without her, and there was much gossip in literary and journalistic circles. Lewis's friend and mentor, Thomas Carlyle, used the slightly censorious description, strong-minded woman, on receiving a letter from Lewis explaining his situation. Charles Kingsley, writing to his fellow clergyman, Frederick Denison Morris, Morris wrote uncharitably of Miss Evans, the infidel esprit fort, who is now G.H. Lewis's concubine. Worse, she suffered nastiness from reviewers when it was discovered soon after the publication to great acclaim of Adam Bede that the unknown new star in the literary firmament, George Eliot, was not only a strong-minded woman in the sense of being independent and holding opinions, but also morally reprehensible. William Hepworth Dixon, writing in the popular literary journal The Athenaeum in July 1859, just after the secret of the authorship of Adam Bede came out, called her a clever woman with an observant eye and unschooled moral nature. It has to be said that none of the reviews of Adam Bede uh, found anywhere anything uh, not moral or unschooled about that book. But now that it was known that who, was, who was the author, some people found that they were changing their minds. But many couldn't because they had uh, nailed their colours to the mast in writing about what a wonderful first-class novel this was and go straight to the head of the charts, as it were. So fortunately for her, uh, this um, abuse didn't last for very long, but it was quite hurtful to her nonetheless. However, as she would say, if asked, her answer to this sort of disapproval was to publish novel after novel of undeniable genius and no tendency towards immorality. Quite the contrary, in fact, since she gave serious analytical attention to the moral problems she created for her fictional characters. Ordinary readers, not to mention Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, seem to have seen nothing to object to in her works, whatever her personal circumstances were. Her novels enjoyed huge critical and financial success. But one person refused resolutely to have contact with Marianne Lewis, as she now called herself. Her brother Isaac, on being told in 1857 that she was living with Lewis but was not legally married to him, broke off relations immediately. Only in 1880 did he break his long silence on the occasion of Marion's legal marriage to her friend John Cross, Lewis having died two years earlier. The difficulties she encountered first with her father over her loss of faith, then with her brother and some of her former friends over the relationship with Lewis caused her great pain and she struggled with depression and bruised pride. Buoyed by Lewis's constancy, optimism and encouragement, she turned personal trouble and disaster into literary triumph. The George Eliot, who emerged into the light as she approached 40, was a formidable product of past unhappiness and a strong sense of injustice, 
wonderfully distilled into novels full of humour, passion, pathos, tragedy, and a hard-won sympathy for others, even those whose flaws she criticised. The novels present utterly believable characters making mistakes, moral and intellectual. Her novels, though forensic in their analysis of psychology and motivation, recognise with sympathy the complex causes and circumstances according to which individuals speak and act. A wide tolerance, a philosophical tendency to look at all sides of a problem and seek for understanding and forgiveness are the hallmarks of her writing. Sometimes, especially in the early works, the narrator buttonholes the reader, demanding our consent to her remarks. Yet the moral lesson is delivered not merely through assertion, but also through situation and dialogue, irony and humour, and well-wrought examples of the paradoxical and inconsistent nature of human beings. Unlike her great contemporary Dickens, George Eliot underwent a lengthy apprenticeship before she emerged as a fine novelist with her first effort at a full-length novel. For Adam Bede was preceded in 1858 by Scenes of Clerical Life, a collection of three promising, if uneven, stories about life in the Midlands in the early part of the century. Adam Bede not only put family and community relationships under the microscope, but also offered a kind of realist manifesto for the writing of fiction. In chapter 17, entitled In Which the Story Pauses a Little, the narrator stands back to counter an imagined reader's protest that the characters are ordinary and flawed, ugly, stupid and inconsistent. This is her imagining the reader saying this. And then she says, I aspire to give no more than a faithful account of men and things as they have mirrored themselves in my mind. Comparing her representations of characters to Dutch paintings showing old women scraping carrots, she claims both an aesthetic and a moral case for the faithful representing of commonplace things and the desire to show that we all have or should have a fibre of sympathy connecting us with our fellow human beings however unattractive they may be. Five years of reviewing literature for the Westminster Review lay behind these bold claims from a first-time author. For before trying her hand at fiction, Marian Evans had produced a number of brilliant essays which asked and answered the question, what makes for good literature? A short critique of Charles Kingsley's Westward Ho in July 1855 regrets Kingsley's dropping into homily at every turn instead of being a teacher in the sense in which every great artist is a teacher, namely by giving us his higher sensibility as a medium, a delicate acoustic or optical instrument bringing home to our coarser senses what would otherwise be unperceived by us. In a long article on the work of the German social historian Wilhelm Heinrich von Riel, she agrees with John Ruskin's objection in his modern painters to idyllic plowmen and opera peasants in art. Once more, she sets out the requirement for the artist. The greatest benefit we owe to the artist, whether painter, poet or novelist, is the extension of our sympathies. Art is the nearest thing to life. It is a mode of amplifying experience and extending our contact with our fellow men beyond the bounds of our personal lot. All the more sacred is the task of the artist when he undertakes to paint the life of the people. We want to be taught to feel not for the heroic artisan or the sentimental peasant, but for ordinary people living ordinary lives. 
What is important is to use art, including literature, to awaken our social sympathies. If this seems to suggest that Marian Evans's idea of literature was a purely moral one, her wittiest essay for the Westminster Review dispels that idea. Finished in September 1856, only 11 days before she embarked on her own fictional career with the first of the scenes of clerical life. The essay that I'm about to quote from shows that she valued literature which produces amusement, imaginative engagement and aesthetic pleasure too. In silly novels by lady novelists, she has fun at the expense of some very bad novels, including those utterly unrealistic ones in which the heroine is usually an heiress, probably a peeress in her own right, with perhaps a vicious baronet, an amiable duke, and an irresistible younger son of a marquis as lovers in the foreground. A clergyman and a poet sighing for her in the middle distance, and a crowd of undefined adorers dimly indicated beyond. Her eyes and her wit are both dazzling. Her nose and her morals are alike free from any tendency to irregularity. She has a superb contralto and a superb intellect. She's perfectly well-dressed and perfectly religious. She dances like a sylph and reads the Bible in the original tongues. <laughs> it's a very, very funny essay, and she does quote from lots of, lots of, lots of forgotten, now rightly forgotten, uh, novels that were coming out at the time in which um, people speak an extraordinary uh, language nobody ever heard or spoke, and in which she shows all these, um, these things happening in these ludicrous novels. Finally, the woman who wrote this article and who was about to embark on the difficult career of novelist herself sums up the requirements of the genre. Just simply, like crystalline masses, it, the novel, may take any form and yet be beautiful. We have only to pour in the right ingredients, genuine observation, humour and passion. Well, George Eliot poured all these ingredients into her own fiction. From her painful youth, she knew feelingly how hard family ties are, how they are the most important and yet the most difficult of relationships. The remark in Adam Bede that I quoted at the beginning about being connected by our heartstrings to the beings who jar us most is a summing up of the uncomfortable relationship between the upright but priggish and censorious young carpenter, Adam, and his loving but querulous mother, one of the main outcomes of the plot is that Adam comes to learn through mistakes and suffering, to unbend somewhat, to accept weakness in others, and to recognise his own failings. Marian Evans' experience of rejection, even some quarters, in some quarters of metropolitan London, on account of her unorthodox relationship with Lewis, give a further dimension to her representation of individual relations, social conditions, and cultural clashes. The second novel, The Mill on the Floss, published in 1860, brings the subject of family ties and social exclusion close to the facts of Mary Ann Evans's own life. It's the nearest thing to an autobiographical novel that she wrote, her equivalent to David Copperfield, though she chooses the distancing method of the third-person narrator, not the first person employed with such genius by Dickens. The novel explores further the melancholy observation from Adam Bede about nature as tragic dramatist. It takes in parents and children, husbands and wives, and with special reference to her loving but painfully antagonistic relationship in her youth with the unbending Isaac, brother and sister, in the persons of Tom and Maggie Tulliver. 
rather remarkably, given Marian's unresolved sorrow and resentment at her estrangement from Isaac. Humour is the hallmark of the novel. The older generation are treated with irony, even broad satire, in the case of the Dodson aunts, whose, whose visit vex Maggie with their criticisms of her boyishness and untidiness and their narrow, petty view of what makes a Dodson a Dodson and therefore superior to the rest of society. Their entrance into the story is signalled as comic by the very title of the chapter which introduces them, Enter the Aunts and Uncles. Mrs. Glegg, the most formidable of the three sisters of Mrs. Tulliver, is described in forensic detail. Mrs. Glegg chose to wear her bonnet in the house today, untied and tilted slightly, of course, a frequent practice of hers when she was on a visit and happened to be in a severe humour. She didn't know what drafts there might be in strange houses. One would need to be learned in the fashions of those times to know how far in the rear of them Mrs. Glegg's slate-coloured silk gown must have been, but from certain small constellations of small yellow spots upon it and a mouldy odour about it suggestive of a damp, damp clothes chest, it was probable that it belonged to a stratum of garments just old enough to have come recently into wear. Comic too is Mr. Tulliver's opinion that his own side of the family is more intelligent and wildly wise. He is proud to have chosen the least bright of the Dodson sisters and is puzzled that his own daughter should have turned out to be cleverer than his son Tom. And this is Mr. Tulliver. It's the wonderfulest thing, as I picked the mother because she wasn't or cute, being a good-looking woman too, and come of a rare family for managing, that I picked her from her sisters of purpose because she was a bit weak-like, for I wasn't going to be told the rights of things by my own fireside. But you see, when a man's got brains himself, there's no knowing where they'll run to, and a pleasant sort of soft woman may go on breeding you stupid lads and cute wenches till it's as like as if the world was turned topsy-turvy. You'll note there the language of farming, breeding, uh, evolution, really. And critics noticed, have noticed uh, the frequency with which George Eliot uses terminology from natural history when describing the motivation and behaviour of her characters. Since her novel was published in 1860, it's sometimes assumed that she was influenced directly by the appearance of Darwin's Origin of Species the previous year. But we should take note that Darwin's work the full title of which is On the Origin of Species by Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favoured Races in the Struggle for Life. It was published in November 1859, by which time George Eliot was writing the very last section of The Mill on the Floss. She was not indebted specifically to Darwin for her use of the language of struggle and selection in the context of the Tulliver family. As with many famous moments in scientific progress, Darwin's book represented a striking and climactic formulation of theories and ideas already aired by naturalists and geologists Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, Charles Lyell, Albert Russell Wallace, Alfred Russell Wallace, for example. George Eliot was widely read in history and science and was living with Lewis, who in 1859 was busy experimenting and writing on animal behaviour and physiology. His seaside studies came out in 1858 and studies in animal life in 1862. Both Lewis and George Eliot were already evolutionists when Darwin's great work came out. They recognised that it was Darwin who answered the question about how species developed. The mechanism for development, he argued, was to be found in the idea of natural selection to explain adaptation and variation and extinction of species. 
George Eliot was fully aware that in dealing with human, not animal life, mechanistic explanations were inadequate. On reading Origin of Species when it was first published, he commented in a letter, this is in November, uh, December, actually, 1859, the development theory and all explanations of processes by which things came to be produce a feeble impression compared with the mystery that lies under the processes. In The Mill on the Floss, she employs the language of familial similarity and difference, as Darwin does, and she appears deterministic in her view of the seemingly inevitable mutual thwarting of Tulliver family members. But, importantly, she also allows for turns for surprises. One example is the reaction late in the novel to Maggie's apparent elopement with her cousin's fiancé. Maggie is disgraced in the eyes of the community, and Tom turns his back on her. The surprise is the response of feeble Mrs. Tulliver. Though her favourite child is the unimaginative and unforgiving Tom, she defies her son and offers Maggie unexpected support in her moment of need. Another mystery which George Eliot raises but does not resolve is why Maggie and Stephen Guest, both half engaged to other people, should fall in love against their own wills as they do. The difficulties of human relationships and family ties are laid bare in all their contradictoriness. It is natural and right that we should scrutinize and analyze human actions and try to determine their motivation. But as the narrator says of the Maggie Stephen relationship, we have no master key that will fit all cases. The comedy of small family disagreements outlined in the early chapters of The Mill on the Floss turns to tragedy. Mr. Tulliver's stubbornness and quarrelsomeness, exacerbated rather than neutralised by Mrs. Tulliver's infuriating attempts to help, lead to his bankruptcy, shame and loss of livelihood, and eventually death. George Eliot compares Mr. Tulliver to Oedipus, who also unwittingly brought about his own downfall, and she insists on winning our sympathy, not only for the children whose life choices are drastically limited by their father's actions, but also for the obstinate Miller himself. Here in practice is the realism she had demanded in her essays and in chapter 17 of Adam Bede, her preference for dealing with old women scraping carrots rather than opera peasants or heroines with perfect looks and perfect intellects. Like two of the authors she most admired, Wordsworth for his valuing of the lives and feelings of ordinary people of no special talent, and Thomas Carlyle with his remark that in every peasant's hut there may be the fifth act of a tragedy going on, George Eliot comments, this is in the middle of, oops, sorry, there we are. The pride and obstinacy of millers and other insignificant people whom you pass unnoticingly on the road every day have their tragedy too, but it is of that unwept hidden sort that goes on from generation to generation and leaves no record. Such tragedy, perhaps, as lies in the conflicts of young souls, hungry for joy under a lot made suddenly hard to them under the dreariness of a home where the morning brings no promise with it, and where the unexpected discord of worn and disappointed parents weighs on the children like a damp, thick air in which all the functions of life are depressed. Or such tragedy as lies in the slow or sudden death that follows on a bruised passion, though it may be a death that finds only a parish funeral. 
1829, the year in which the opening of the novel is set, Tom is 13 and Maggie 10, the same ages as Isaac and Mary Ann Evans were in that year. Whatever Maggie does, she ends up somehow in the wrong with her censorious brother. Her creator is almost always on her side against Tom's righteous injustice to her, as in the famous early scene of the jam puffs. Mrs. Tulliver is baking in preparation for the visit of the aunts, and the children are given three jam puffs to share. They eat one each, and Tom proceeds to divide the third with his pocket knife. One piece ends up bigger than the other, and Tom gets Maggie to close her eyes and choose right hand or left. Maggie gets the bigger half. You've got it, said Tom in a rather bitter tone. What, the bit with the jam run out? No, here, take it, said Tom firmly, handing decidedly the best piece to Maggie. Oh, please, Tom, have it. I don't mind. I like the other. Please, take this. No, I shan't, said Tom, almost crossly, beginning on his own inferior piece. Maggie, thinking it was no use to contend further, began to, and ate up her half-puff with considerable relish as well as rapidity. Oh, you greedy thing, said Tom, when she had swallowed the last morsel. She was conscious of having acted very fairly and thought she ought to have considered this and made up to him for it. He would have refused a bit of hers beforehand, but one is naturally at a different point of view before and after one's own share of puff is swallowed. <laughs> well, you can see Tom is the chief object of the narrator's irony here, but, and this is very typical of George Eliot, readers, we readers, are to recognise that, that there is a truth for all of us here. So one is naturally at a different point of view. It's partly ironic and partly a truth, which we are supposed to recognise as true to our own natures too. As the children grow into young adults, the dynamic between them remains the same, with Maggie annoyingly impulsive and Tom insensitive to her needs and always ready to punish her with his disapproval and prohibitions. The novel's ending unexpectedly risks melodrama with the tragic death and a flood of Tom and Maggie reconciled as they sink beneath the swollen river Floss. George Eliot's avowed belief that fiction should be realistic, not about opera peasants and so on, presenting life's disappointments honestly and accepting imperfect solutions rather than embracing improbable romance, this avowed belief in realism usually leads her to offer quiet and thoughtful conclusions, not Wagnerian ones. She and Lewis, by the way, had heard Wagner's operas being performed under Liszt's direction at Weimar, and they later met Wagner in London. Her response to Lohengrin was to compare it to the whistling of the wind through the keyholes of a cathedral. She wasn't hugely impressed. But inasmuch as Maggie represents Marion Evans' own strong contradictory feelings for her brother, we can see George Eliot in the mill on the floss metaphorically turning the tables on him, breaking off through dramatic fiction the relationship which Isaac had bro broken off with her in life. But she sacrifices Maggie too and emphasises the loving embrace between the siblings as they meet their deaths. Brother and sister had gone down in an embrace never to be parted. It's unusual for George Eliot, and we may suppose that she was expressing deeply held personal hurts. In the circumstances, it's a triumph that the mill on the floss contains as much everyday ordinariness, felt life, pathos juxtaposed with comedy as it does, not to mention its striking authorial benevolence. For despite being so close emotionally to the fraught material of her novel, 
George Eliot manages to tell her sad story of family life with empathy for all its members, from the stubborn Mr. Tulliver to the foolish Mrs. Tulliver to the self-righteous Tom and the impulsive Maggie. The novels which followed extend George Eliot's range in terms of the observation, passion and humour, the three ingredients that she'd specified in silly novels by leading novelists, observation, passion and humour that she puts into them, and the complexity of human relationships she creates and analyses. I can't go into all of them, but just briefly, the next after The Mill on the Floss, Silas Marner, published in 1861, once more dwells on ordinary rural life in the early years of the 19th century. It tells the moving story of the lonely weaver, an outcast and reluctant miser, who finds himself bringing up an abandoned orphan, the golden-haired Epi. Through her, he's brought into contact with the local community and has his faith in humanity restored. It's the novel, I suppose, which has the happiest ending of all of her novels. Middlemarch, published in 1871 to two, is agreed by most readers to be her greatest novel. Critics have marveled at it, beginning with Henry James when the novel first came out and proceeding via Virginia Woolf, who celebrated the centenary, the first centenary of George Eliot's birth in November 1919 with her famous remark that Middlemarch is a magnificent book one of the few English novels written for grown-up people. In the present day, declarations of admiration have come from novelists including A.S. Byatt, Alan Hollinghurst, Zadie Smith, and Thomas Keneally, the last of whom, Keneally, told the Sunday Times in 2013 that Middlemarch is a template for all novels about relationships. According to Keneally, the novel has never been outthought or outwritten in its representation of human relationships. The world which George Eliot creates in this novel, whose subtitle is A Study of Provincial Life, is that of a middling Midlands town in the late 1820s, when industrialization was moving at pace, with railways beginning to arrive and political reform in the air through agitation, both inside and outside Parliament. The resulting abolition of rotten boroughs and extension of the franchise came about with the first great reform act of 1832. At the same time, there were calls for radical improvement in medical training, for social improvements, such as education for all, and for the production of inexpensive books and newspapers. The town of Middlemarch represents middling society at this time and of rapid change, when, as the narrator says in chapter 11, municipal town and rural parish gradually made fresh threads of connection and one could observe this stealthy convergence of human, stealthy convergence of human lots. Some slipped a little downward, some got higher footing, people denied aspirates, gained wealth, and fastidious gentlemen stood for boroughs. Some were caught in political currents, some in ecclesiastical, and perhaps found themselves surprisingly grouped in consequence. The narrator's job is to locate young and old, male and female, long-established citizen and incomer in this shifting historical context, unravelling, as she says in chapter 15, certain human lots and seeing how they were woven and interwoven in this particular web of the author's weaving. There are two main protagonists or centres of consciousness in Middlemarch. Both are young idealists who finally have to accept compromise when caught up in the hampering thread-like pressure of small social conditions. 
One, the heiress Dorothea Brooke, hurries into marriage at 19 with a much older man, the dried-up pedant, the Reverend Edward Casaubon. Her idea is that such a knowledgeable and intelligent man will educate her and encourage her plans to do good among the neighbouring poor. The really delightful marriage, she thinks, must be that where your husband was a sort of father and could teach you even Hebrew if you wished it. As for Mr. Kosobon, having reached his mid-forties without a companion, he hopes that marriage to this blooming and enthusiastic young girl will help him to finish his life's work, a great volume on the key to all mythologies. Not by offering an opinion, which Dorothea is to find herself doing to his irritation, but by showing devotedness, the, the ability to cast a charm over vacant hours and to lighten his solitariness, as he puts it in his letter of proposal. George Eliot combines humour at the illusions of both Dorothea and Casaubon with understanding sympathy of their predicaments. Dorothea's narrow edu education and lack of parental advice and Casaubon's lonely egotism. Their marriage is predictably miserable. The second idealist is the incomer Tertius Lydgate, a young doctor schooled in the latest medical advances, such as the use of the stethoscope and an advocate of post-mortems as an aid to medical knowledge. These enthusiasms are viewed with suspicion, not only by the ordinary citizens of Middlemarch, but also by the existing physicians and surgeons with their traditional preferred methods and ready prescription of medicines, which Lydgate scorns as unnecessary. Rivalries and gossip ensue, and Lydgate's plans to open a fever hospital in the town are thwarted. To compound his disappointments, he too marries in a hurry and ill-advisedly, partly because his idea of the perfect wife is as selfish in its way as Mr. Casaubon's is. When Lydgate meets Dorothea, he thinks her a little too earnest. The society of such women was about as relaxing as going from your work to teach the second form, instead of reclining in a paradise with sweet laughs for bird notes and blue eyes for a heaven. Much more to his taste is the beautiful blue-eyed Rosamond Vincy, who he soon discovers combines a mild manner with a will of iron. Money problems, Lydgate's unpopularity with his fellow medical men, his failing attempts to educate his patients, and Rosamond's lack of sympathy for either his profession or his determination to improve it add up to a marriage as miserable as the Kosovan one. The narrator talks of that total missing each other's mental track, which is too evidently possible even between persons who are continually thinking of each other. The sexual chemistry between them is clear, but, like Adam Bede and his complaining mother, or Tom and Maggie Tulliver, this pair irritate each other at every turn. Henry James noted that the most perfectly successful passages in the book are those painful fireside scenes between Lydgate and Rosamond. There is nothing more powerfully real than these scenes in all English fiction, he declared in a review of Middlemarch, and nothing certainly more intelligent. One of the most painful of these conversations occurs in chapter 58. Lydgate has to tell Rosamond that he's in debt and they must sell some of their furniture. He asks her rather forcefully to help him decide how to save money. We must think together about it and you must help me. What can I do, Tertius, said Rosamond, turning her eyes on him again. 
that little speech of four words is capable by varied vocal inflections of expressing all states of mind, from helpless dimness to exhaustive argumentative perception, from the completest self-devoting fellowship to the most neutral aloofness. Rosamond's thin utterance threw into the words, what can I do, as much neutrality as they could hold. They fell like a mortal chill on Lydgate's roused tenderness. Meanwhile, Rosamond quietly went out of the room, leaving Lydgate helpless and wondering, was she not coming back? It seemed that she had no more identified herself with him than if they had been creatures of different species and opposing interests. Though Virginia Woolf does not elaborate on her reasons for saying that Middlemarch is, a distinctive, is distinctive in appealing to grown-ups, we may surmise that she, like Henry James, has in mind moments like this, of which there are many in the novel. As Keneally says, the novel is distinctive in the sustained attention given to the complexities of relationships, especially, but by no means exclusively, those between Lydgate and Rosamond and Dorothea and Casaubon. In short, Middlemarch is a finely woven tapestry of interconnecting threads, whether personal, professional or social. It presents a fictional community in all its fullness and variety, in a narrative held together by the wit, intelligence and sympathy of its creator. The finale of the novel looks ahead to the years after the main narrative, summing up the mixed fortunes of the main characters. Lydgate feels himself a failure with his dashed hopes of becoming an important medical reformer and his painful recognition of the limitations of his wife's sympathy with his aspirations. Dorothea, after the death of Mr. Casaubon, finds happiness in her second marriage to Will Ladislaw, but she too falls short of her ideal of being more than just a wife and mother. Yet George Eliot is determined to end on a note which is neither definitively pessimistic nor unrealistically optimistic. Philosophically, she occupies a middle position. In 1868, a few months before she began writing Middlemarch, she told an acquaintance, a young doctor who confided in her about his professional and personal problems, that the inspiring principle of her fiction was to help her readers to acquire a clearer conception of those vital elements which bind men together. She outlined the balancing view of life, this balancing view of life known as meliorism, which informed her work. And this is her letter to Clifford Olber, the, the young doctor. Never to beat and bruise one's wings against the inevitable, but to throw the whole force of one's soul towards the achievement of some possible better is the brief heading that need never be changed, however often the chapter of more special rules may have to be rewritten. The final paragraph of Middlemarch, summarising the pros and cons of Dorothea's life and relationships, illustrates this view. The language is carefully poised. A series of doubtful or negating words is channeled into an ultimately hopeful, though by no means idealised, resolution. Here at work is George Eliot's particular idea of the importance of realism in art. From contemplating Dorothea's most important relationships with Casaubon, with Will Ladislaw, and crucially with Lydgate, to whom she reaches out in his time of greatest trouble, the narrator moves subtly into the wider realm of human relationships in general. And this is the very end of Middlemarch. Her finely touched spirit had still its fine issues, though they were not widely visible. Her full nature spent itself in channels which had no great name on the earth. But the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive. 
for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me, as they might have been, is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. You can see the seesawing between positives and negatives, and you recognise again that we, the reader, fellow human beings are brought into the picture too. We are to respond with sympathy and understanding. Art is the nearest thing to life, she had written in her essay, The Natural History of German Life. Middlemarch is the proof, and its final words, the expression of this belief. Thank you.